Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello, it's Craig Gilbert. Welcome to another episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by the marvellous and thoroughly charming theatre director, Michael Oakley. Michael's director plays all over the UK, including Romeo and Juliet at the Globe, uh, Much Ado About Nothing also at the Globe, A Lovely Sunday for Krev Kur at the Print Room, The Invisible by Rebecca Lenkovitz at the Bush Theatre, and The Life of Times of Fanny Hill for the Bristol Old Vic. In 2012, he was the co-artistic director of Theatre on the Fly as part of the Chichester Festival Theatre, and in 2008, he was the winner of the JMK Award with his production of Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. This is a great conversation that me and Michael had, particularly for emerging and early career directors. Michael goes into great detail and says some really interesting things about being an assistant and an associate director. And he also talks about the process of applying for and winning the JMK Award and gives some great advice for directors out there who are thinking about applying for both the JMK Award and similar schemes and some exercises that you can try at home when writing those applications and thinking about making pitches for those awards. Um, I will not keep you any longer. We'll get straight to my conversation with Michael. Thank you so much. and We'll speak soon. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Craig. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm starting each of these episodes by asking our guests what uh, social distancing looks like for you and what you've been up to. Uh, Social distancing so far has been quite good for me because it's forced me to sit down and do quite a lot of work on two scripts that I'd not been putting off but just hadn't got round to and one was fairly pressing. So it's been quite good and quite productive. Um... And uh, yeah, and and a good opportunity to read a lot and do a lot of research, I think. So it's looking so far so good, but we're just at the start. So who knows what it'll be like in a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I was thinking the other day, you know, I, I, do, I do like my house, but I have never spent quite so much time in it. I've had like lazy Sundays in my flat, but I've had a whole lazy week. It's very odd, very weird, but... But I'm trying to trying to utilise the, the this opportunity, I suppose. See it as an opportunity. Um, so, Michael, tell us, where are you from? I'm from Ipswich originally in Suffolk, uh, but I've lived in London now for oh gosh, since 2007, so quite a while now. Do you know uh, where where the theatre thing comes from? Like, do you come from you come from an artsy family? Do you have arts oh, in your background? No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, no, what do your folks fam- do. Uh, my uh, when I my mum works for the county council now. When I was growing up, she worked for Britannia Building Society, I think. And then my dad, because obviously growing up in Ipswich, Felixstowe docks are quite near there. My dad was a shipping clerk for years and years in an office, and then his last job was checking the tickets as people came through the barrier of Ipswich Station. So my pair, I'm not from an artistic background at all, and and what happened to me, I remember it quite clearly, is that I, I was really into history and I really wanted to be a historian. And um, my brother, had, my older brother, had been on a trip that my school had done to Stratford-upon-Avon to see a couple of plays because it's just sort of what you did. You went on that trip. And I was in year eight and you're only meant to be in year nine. But I begged and begged and begged the teacher, could I go on the trip? Mainly because I just wanted to go to Warwick Castle in 
a few historic sites really that were all part of that trip to Stratford. But you also got to see the Friday evening show and the Saturday matinee show at the RSC. And I wasn't really that up for it, but I went to see a production. And the first thing I ever saw was Richard III. So it's history related, obviously, with David Troughton playing uh, Richard, who I got to work with later, which was really exciting. Um, David Troughton playing Richard. And I'd never seen Shakespeare play, didn't really know much about Shakespeare, but it utterly, utterly changed me I think because it was just I found it very weird and very disturbing and a rather odd production and it was very long I remember it being very long but I kind of remember being sort of completely entranced by it and the next day I saw Josie Lawrence I think it was in The Taming of the Shrew which was completely different and I couldn't quite believe it was the same writer and was just completely fascinated by that and that was the moment really and since that moment I just sort of wanted to go and see lots of Shakespeare plays and wanted to go to lots of theatre and and um, and so you know I used to ask for a theatre trip to be my birthday or Christmas present and and that's how I sort of built it all up really. Well and do you uh, do you do you remember any of those birthday and Christmas trips anything that particularly stands out? They're probably all to Stratford really because Ipswich isn't far from Liverpool well to get into lunch you have to go to Liverpool Street Station so the Barbican was really was like a five minute walkway. So I remember going to see some productions there. I remember going to see a Troilus and Cressida. Can you believe it? As from like a 13, 14 year old. Didn't have a clue what was going on um, at all. But but I remember it. I remember it. I think Joseph Fiennes was in that. A, a, a very young Joseph Fiennes. But it was, and Victoria Hamilton, I think. But it was. Um, before they were famous obviously but there was just a lot of it was very greek it all looked very sort of um greek and uh, as it is set in the trojan war i remember going to see that i remember going to see a romeo and juliet um everyone has to see that don't they at some point um and uh yeah but i suppose it was mainly being a bit obsessed with the rsc probably actually now i say it um got me into it and then so it was shakespeare really and then from there, I branched out. What, where I was lucky, my mum, after she worked at the building society, got a job on the railways. And so I got free train travel. So it's when I got free free train travel to London, when I was about, oh, I think I was about 16, 17, that's when I started going to the National Theatre and started broadening my horizons a bit and, and seeing more than just Shakespeare. And, and that was really exciting. I remember some amazing shows at the National, actually. Amazing, amazing theatre. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, do you remember the moment where you decided, uh, yes, this is the thing for me, this is what I'm going to pursue and try and make my living from? Well, yeah, yeah kind of. What I got involved in my local youth theatre, as I suppose a lot of people that work in theatre now do, and I really enjoyed it. But I never really enjoyed acting that much. I... I probably because I wasn't very good at it and I um I uh, uh I, you can always tell I'm a- I was acting I think and I never really enjoyed performance what I did discover quite early on was that I preferred watching it or I preferred not being on that side of it and my teachers at school said oh you should be a director and I was like oh gosh I've got no idea how to be a director and I didn't really think if you weren't going to be an actor, or well, what? What was the point of being anything really? And I and I just remember saying, I don't understand how a director can pick up a play and uh, and decide that's how it's done. And they, my both my teachers said to me, that's not how it actually works. Um, 
But I do remember it was on a trip to the National Theatre and I saw a production of The Merchant of Venice and it was really clever because it was set in the late 1930s, just before the Holocaust. So the whole, uh, all the the uh, Jewish characters were, were in ghettos and the Christians were sort of acting in a rather horrific way. And it really illuminated the play for me. And I thought, gosh, I never want to see a Shakespeare production in, you know, Elizabethan clothes again, because, uh, you know, that setting has really illuminated the play and really brought things out in this play that I, I didn't, never knew about and I thought gosh that's so clever and that's a that's probably what directing really means is is sort of unlocking a play like that and it was that moment really and then when I went to university I um in my final term of my first year I directed a production of Much Do About Nothing and the whole way through rehearsals like oh, I think I could probably play Beatrice and Benedict better than better than these actors and then the first performance in front of an audience I started watching them them do their first tussle and I was like, there's no way in a zillion years I could ever get to one tenth of their brilliance. And I that was the moment I went, yeah, I'm in the right place here. Brilliant. Where, where did you go to uni? I went to York. Yeah, I went to York. Had a great time in York. There's a really amazing drama society there that's, well, at the time they called itself the most active drama society in the country, but I'm sure that's not true. But there was a play on every week and there were 10 slots a term. So you had to sort of pitch your play and apply for your play to get your slot. But it was great because you could always see something brilliant each week. And it was um, it was fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Met some really amazing pe- people. I was there with some really amazing people who are now, you know, Nick Payne was the year below me. And I remember going, you know, he was just starting to write some plays that were on in the, um, you know, here and there. And, um, and yeah, really amazing um, group of contemporaries very very lucky and um, were you were you studying drama then or was the drama entirely an extracurricular thing it was all extracurricular because they didn't have a drama they don't have a drama well they didn't have a drama course at York I don't know if they've got one now but no it was all extracurricular which which was kind of great because you know you had your your subject and then drama really was a passion I suppose because no one was studying it and there was none of this oh we're on the drama course you're not if that makes sense um so, you know, there were all sorts of people from all sorts of degrees all coming together to do plays, which was absolutely brilliant. And, um, for example, there's one guy there who I think he was studying science, but he's now a professor of Shakespeare because he loved doing the Drama Society play so much that he got bitten by the bug and he's made it his career, which is great. <laughs> and so after uh, after doing all those plays at university, what were your your first steps into the professional theatre and how, well, how did that journey start? Well, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, I think anyone starting out, it's sort of, I remember being terrified and, and I'd been a little bit lucky in that before I went to university, I did a, uh, sadly for me, my parents split up while I was doing my A-levels. And so I decided very last minute to do a gap year and, and I was working in McDonald's at the time and I'd been working there for two years. And what I was going to do was work at McDonald's to get some money and then go and do some work experience at various theatres and stuff. But but I was very lucky and I applied for an, a year's internship at the Globe, never thinking I would get it. And I got it. And because I was allowed that free train travel, I could, I could sort of, because I wouldn't be able to afford to live in London, but I could commute a bit from home. And so I worked at the Globe for a year before I went to university. 
And then luckily I did a lot of temping work there in my holidays from uni. And it's no coincidence that my first assisting gig was at the Globe. But it was 18 months after I graduated. So I graduated in 2005 or somewhere, something like that. And then I I didn't really start working on this till December 2006. Yeah, if you finish in June, July, yeah, it's just just under 18 months. So it was a long time. and And I remember those 18 months it's quite scary you know you're going gosh I'm gonna I've made this decision that I want to be a director but I wrote to all my idols and said to them oh gosh I love your work so much please can you meet me for a cup of tea and give me advice and actually so many of them did and and it was really wonderful and I met some incredible directors and just had a cup of tea with them and and, and got all the advice I could get and and did everything I could do I mean this is 15 years ago coming up to 15 years ago now and I think the climate's changed quite a lot and uh, in some ways I think there are more opportunities for younger directors than there were when I was starting out but 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 I was very lucky that I'd worked at the Globe and so I got this job and it was only in a it was in a production with the for young people in the education department but it was a full-scale show of again ironically much about nothing which was the first play I ever directed and it was the first play I ever assisted on so there's something very special about that play for me and um and uh it was a great experience tough experience learning how to be an assistant and thrown in working with professional actors because you don't really know how much you can say and how much you can't but but yeah that was the first thing and I suppose and my second assisting job sorry to say it's all probably sounds nepotism or networking but Tamara Harvey had been the assistant director at the Globe when I was there in my gap year and I bumped into her at the Globe um, just after I'd done this job and she was doing a show at the Bush and, and, and she said you want to be a director didn't you I said oh yeah yeah you know I still do and she said oh look I may have this opportunity and I got that job and, and worked with her so I suppose it was a little bit of, of networking for of, I hate that phrase but but you know, if that makes sense, it sort of uh, it sort of went from there, really. You did a uh, a really good apprenticeship as an assistant director, and you uh, you assisted a lot of uh, brilliant I did. people. Yeah, and uh, nobody nobody ever really talks about assisting, but it is a it is it's a specific skill set, isn't it? And and you did yeah. a lot of it, and obviously I, very well. Uh, so I wonder if you can if you can talk a little bit because people listening to this will uh, will they'll either be doing those jobs or they'll yeah. be trying to get those jobs. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about being sure. an assistant director. Yeah. yeah, no, I did. A, I probably I probably did more assisting than a hell of a lot of people, and I suppose there's good things and bad things about that. I, I suppose I, I think what. I think what I initially found difficult about the job was how much can I say, how much can't I say? And the problem is each director genuinely has different needs from their assistant. Um, I, I, um, uh, and obviously you build some relationships up with directors and I'm still in touch with a couple of them. Well, more than in touch, you know, they're good friends now, people I've worked with as an assistant and other people you just you know you work with them once and and that's it and it's been a wonderful experience but but, you know there's no more of it um I suppose what I have really loved about it the most valuable thing I've picked up from it that's been um useful for me is what you get to do is you get to see I've been so blessed in that I've been in rehearsal rooms where I've seen some incredible things happen and some really really amazing actors work and 
and getting to know those actors and understanding their process and their approach and their skill, how they use their skills and how they build a character. I've just found that absolutely phenomenal in the same way that I've been lucky enough to work on, I mean, huge productions of plays by really brilliant writers. And again, you know, you that's all a bonus. And where I have been lucky is people I've met as an assistant have then come and done plays that I've directed. And that's a huge, huge bonus, which is good. Where it can be tough is I think you have an awful lot of responsibility, but absolutely no power. Um, not to sound power hungry about it, in that you, you have a lot to do, but it's not. sometimes it's not very visible at all. And I have, sometimes it breeds paranoia. I mean, I've sat in rehearsal rooms where I think, gosh, everyone must think I'm really dim or rubbish at my job or really lazy because I know I'm not saying much at the moment, but there's no time to say anything. And also I'm working behind the scenes doing this, but it's not a very visible job. So sometimes it can be a bit of a thankless task. And also, you know, you question why why you're in a room sometimes because sometimes the director doesn't need you and you have to say okay I'm here if they were ill I'd have to sort of take over and that's that's fine um so you know those drawbacks of the job are quite are are quite tough and it can be you know working on big musicals for example is really exhausting because people get injured or are ill all the time and you have to come in and just absolutely sort it all out very quickly and very efficiently um and that can be a bit stressful sometimes. Um, but yeah, there are, there are pros and cons. And I suppose I was lucky in that I got a job at Chichester as um training director, where half the job was about assisting and half the job was to teach you how to run a building. And um, But I met some really incredible directors on that, that um, when I was employed there. And they've gone on to work with me, or I've worked with them rather, um, you know, uh, across productions after that. And I often find it interesting to see how a director changes when the writer's different or different group of actors, but how they approach a, a, a play when when the writer's different and, and whether their their process is the same or not. Um, and I find all that very, very useful. But I have been very conscious that you've got to keep, you mustn't just assist and then go off and do your own thing. You've got to do your own thing alongside assisting or else you don't really know who you are. And um, or, or if you're just doing your own thing and you've never assisted or never been in someone else's room, you, 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 um, you, know, you, you haven't got any amazing tools you can use or nick or borrow or expand or you know, evolve to help you on discover your process. So it's got to go it's got to go you know hand in glove uh, as a sort of scheme across things and and yeah i mean i would urge anyone to to do it if you possibly can whether it's a small production or a big production because i found it so incredibly useful both personally for for my own work afterwards and and uh, and i mean professionally in that sense and personally in in the sense that uh, that i've learned so much from it and, and so much about buildings and theatres and how it how it all works. You know, my first professional show I did, I, I sort of had no idea and it probably showed. Because that probably hasn't really answered your question. I've waffled, but um, No, no, um, no, that's great. And um what what was your uh, your first show in your own right as a professional director? Well I was slightly flung into the deep end because I, I was very young, I was twenty four I think, 
I won the JMK award and um, did a production of Edward the Second, which which is a bit silly, really, to do a massive play like that when you're that young. Um, but I don't regret it because, again, I've just learned so much, and you're really sort of thrown in at the deep end. And that, you know, I didn't even really understand what a production manager did at that point. Um, you know, because when you're doing plays at university, you never, um, you don't have much contact with a production manager. And I'd only done two quite small scale assisting jobs before then, so I, I hadn't really grasped it all. And that was quite that was quite a challenge. For example, I remember the tech being very, very stressful because I didn't quite understand how it all worked. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of think it's rather brazen, isn't it, at 24 to go, yeah, look, I'm going to do this big play. Why not? Let's have a go at it. And and again, I learned so much from that experience that it was kind of kind of wonderful. And I and I think it's good to to give I'm sure other directors would completely disagree with this and but I think it's really good to give yourself a massive challenge like that when you're out of your depth at that age because again you you really learn and you're really um forging things I mean the downside of that is you you know you've you're out there aren't you I remember feeling very exposed after that experience because you know all if you were directing a ward people come and watch it with a different set of eyes don't they because it's all about it all becomes about what the director's done rather than what the piece is itself so I found that quite um challenging at, at that age but but again good to have gone through it so early on it, it really does it really does you know make you make you uh you know gives you a bit more armor but but that was the moment I decided I was so inexperienced after that whole experience, I went, I have, what I really need to do is assist and assist on some big shows to really understand what this is all about, because I really don't at the moment. And I wonder if we can, if we can just go back a little bit. I wonder, mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the JMK process? Because obviously yeah. the JMK Award is an amazing thing, but I yeah. know uh, a lot of young directors find the uh the application process a bit foreboding oh, yeah. because they yeah. don't they don't give you very much to go on so no. um if you can cast your mind back to yeah, 24 year old old michael michael oakley applying for the jmk award and what uh what advice would you give anyone that wants to uh, to write those proposals for those awards that uh, offer a, a production well, it's really tough, isn't it? Because I always think if I could speak this or just get in front of the panel, then I, I stand way more chance of winning something like this. Um, but but you've got to write it down, and that's rather difficult. I can, I do remember because I had applied for it the year before, and 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 had got to the final, um, and and I remember what had happened was I they I think they ask you to do three things. You have to write five hundred words about the play, 500 words about the production, and 500 words about your rehearsal process. Well, I think I was all right on the first two because I could write about why I liked the play, what sort of production I wanted to make, but the rehearsal process I felt was um, pretty hard to talk about. Um, You know, how do you know how you're going to rehearse this when you haven't got your group of actors together? So I just kind of wrote that. I said, you know, I don't know what, what I would do or by week four I would do this. I said, all I know is that this is this type of place. So you're gonna to have to approach this uh, this scene with this in mind because of all of this. But I remember I wrote the application, and I showed it to. I was temping at the time, and I just showed it to 
um, my manager, and uh, because I, I was worried about grammar and all that kind of thing, and my manager, you know, just said, oh, this is all absolutely fine, but why do you think you can direct that play better than anyone else? Because they're thinking of it from quite a business perspective, I suppose, and sort of selling yourself, which is something I had never really thought about at that age, and, and, I, and I was like, oh gosh, that's so true. So I went back and redid the whole thing and sort of said, I identify with this play because of this moment. I absolutely know what that feels like. And I think that's an important thing for people to be, to be, um, to be engaging with. And I suspect that's probably what got me through is that they don't want, it's quite academic, isn't it? To sit there and write about a play because I suppose when you're that age or you've done if you've done an English degree like me, all you've done is sat down and write about plays in a very academic way, a very academic fashion. And actually, they're asking you not to do that. And it's really hard to understand uh, how how to start that off. But it was interesting that she said that to me. I remember it very clearly. And I think that's obviously what might have made me not so much stand out, but, but which might have just pinged, pinged me out a little bit. I mean, I always say the to young directors, the best thing to watch is Dragon's Den on television because because you have you spend so much of your life pitching and you spend so much of your life going oh you know but but I think you've you've always got to you've with a directing with with some with a directing world you've always got to think about is there an audience for it I, I because I, I've been a judge on the JMK panel since then a few years ago and and. Of course, you can talk about yourself and why you identify with that play. But also, I think what's important is saying, how can other people identify with this play? What does this play say about society? Or why is this play going to attract an audience? Because at the end of the day, you know, people have to get an audience to the door. We don't exist without an audience, you know. And and so if you know what you want to say to your audience and why you want to say it, then then actually I think the I think that is what certainly helps. So it's not all just about you and your there's there's hundreds of plays I absolutely love, but I will probably never ever direct because they haven't got an I can't see an audience for them, you know what I mean? Or you might get three people through the door. So you have to think broadly about what's what's going to appeal. So I'd say always think about the audience. Uh, an exercise I've done with young directors on a Dragon's Den theme is I've gone and got um, uh, articles from the paper from the day before, cut out articles and got people to say, OK, you, you, you need to make a play. Uh, uh, this is the theme of this article. You need to make a play, a pitch about this. And you've got 20 minutes to, to say what type of production you're going to do, what sort of writer you want, what act, sort of actors you want and why this is an important play to put on and pitch it to me and tell me where you want to put it on. And I think it's a good exercise just to remind yourself that your job is, it is, a, a to, you've got to see those things as getting the job. And, and, and once you've got through that, I don't know, that wall, that hurdle, then you can sort of go out and, and, and actually do the show. But you have to remember, it's got to have a bit more of a mass appeal than you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, that's that's brilliant advice uh, and and super clear. Uh, and so, can we also talk about you? Uh, you were Trevor Nunn's assistant for quite yeah. some time. 
and yeah. then became his associate. You have a yeah. long running relationship with him. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that came about and how that uh, relationship blossomed, and, sure. and what it means, and also what it means to move from being an assistant to associate, and what the differentiation is? Absolutely. Um. So, I so this production of Merchant of Venice I spoke about earlier was actually directed by Trevor, and Trevor's from Ipswich, where I'm from as well. Um. And and so you know he's bit of a local hero and um what happened to me was i'd applied for the job at chichester and hey this is to everyone to prove that that sometimes this does happen um i'd applied to the job at chichester after i won the jmk award and actually i didn't get it and um jonathan church rang me up and said look i'm i'm really sorry we haven't given you a job we, we've gone with someone else but um uh, uh we'll keep you on file probably nothing will come with from this but you never know what will happen and then about three weeks later I got a call saying oh gosh Trevor Nunn's directing a production of Cyrano de Bergerac here at Chichester can you um he's meeting a few people next week we've obviously got your name on file do you want to be one of those people and I was like yes please and um so I met Trevor had an interview and got the job and it was absolutely terrifying um and I remember because this was my first gig in a you know, a rehearsal room that had, you know, stars in it, star actors in it, and that was on a massive stage that had a cast of, God, I don't know, something like 30, including all the supernumeraries. It was absolutely huge. And it was a really, it was sort of, I just remember pinching myself under the table going, I can't quite believe this is happening. And um, yeah, I worked with Trevor there and, and um, I think we just, rather brilliantly, I suppose, because we were in Chichester, there's not that much to do when the production you're not rehearsing and we we'd been there for a week before we were in tech so we just thought you just hang out for quite a lot and we just became uh, we just had to hang out quite a lot and uh, obviously we're working alongside him and you know just got chatting and it all went great and then he was doing a massive production of inherit the wind at the old vit later that year which david trout was in who was of course the first person i ever saw in a play so i was, was uber excited about that but he Trevor put me forward for it, this big job at the Old Vic, and, and suddenly I, I was 26 or something, and suddenly I was doing this big job, which was a huge job, and it just sort of went from there, really, and I probably got a bit too comfortable, I suppose. I, I really, un because he's the person I've worked with most, I sort of really understood how how to work alongside him, what he needed and when. I really understood how to read him. There were a few bumpy moments uh, especially in Inherit the Wind because it was such a big job but you know you, you when you think oh gosh I'm really not doing well today or no he's not happy about that or whatever and then you but then you you, you learn to ride those and and then yeah I, I just suppose I worked with him a few times after that and I'd actually stopped assisting after I'd you know done a show at Bristol Old Vic etc and all of this and then he he was doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream at in Ipswich at the Wolsey did his last Shakespeare play and I'd never done a Shakespeare play of him and because that production of Merchant of Venice had meant so much I kind of thought oh my gosh I'd love to see what he's like as a Shakespearean director and he's and he was completely different he was uh, his approach was very different from other plays because his approach to the language was sort of the foremost thing and it was amazing to be in a room with someone I'd been in a room with a few times before to see him be very to have a slightly different approach and so I sort of I sort of ended, so I sort of did that job as a sort of end to it, really, and and it was a wonderful way to sort of finish that 
that relationship. And so what happened was I'd started off, my first job, I was the assistant director and there was an associate director on it as well, Cyrano de Bergerac. So it wasn't just me, thankfully. I wouldn't have been able to cope with that because I was so inexperienced. Um, and then I was the assistant director on Inherit the Wind. And and thereafter, I think I think associate doesn't, I think in the in the old days, back in back in the 70s and 80s, from what I can infer, because obviously I wasn't born then, but from what I can infer is that, you know, associate was, you know, you did, you were your assistant. And then when you had a bit more experience, you became an associate. And associate was a much sort of bigger thing. I suppose the only equivalent we have to it now, what an associate meant and, and then how that came about, was the sort of associate director directors at the national is that they don't their stripes so to speak and now they do their own stuff as associates at the national it was it was very much a clear stepping stone whereas nowadays i think people become associate directors much quicker because it is a nicer title i mean for me i didn't really see any any distinction in the jobs other than as an associate i felt i could pretty much get away with having that title because I had experience and and also associate I I don't think I've ever been associate director someone I'd never worked with before if that makes sense uh, so I think you're the assistant and then you become the associate if, if that makes sense I can't remember ever going straight in at associate level with someone I'd never worked with so I suppose that's the different and as an associate you get a bit more um you get a little bit more uh responsibility and you know and and I have been in a situation where there's been a director I've been the associate and there has been an assistant um which 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 is nice and and that was very uh that was a really intriguing experience because obviously I'd started off that way and and so I suppose it's all about experience I mean and often if you're an associate director you know you've got understudy responsibilities uh which which are huge and you know you have to be very meticulous about those and very on the ball so it's all about experience really I mean the job isn't that different it's just about experience and knowing a bit more what's what and you probably have to run the ship a bit more so as an associate you probably have to do the the rehearsal schedules each day for stage management and the director and it's just a bit more responsibility but I'm sure some people do that as an assistant as well. And can we talk a little bit now about uh, your your process as a director? And uh, just to, just to kick that off, when uh, when you were first uh, uh, becoming a director or thinking about it, were there were there any particular resources or books that really spoke to you in terms of how you might go about making work? I didn't read a lot of books about directing. I must admit, I didn't really read, and I still don't, to be honest. What I do love reading though is rehearsal diaries. So I love, I love reading. So Max Stafford Clark's book Letters to George, you know, about him putting on the recruiting officer. That's such a brilliant book. I think about directing in the Anthony Share book Year of the King about the rehearsal process. I really loved reading rehearsal room diaries and things. That's what I mainly read. There is an amazing book that came out, not came out by the time I was sort of in that assisting mode by John Caird called The Director's Craft. It's a massive book. You know, it weighs a ton, but it's absolutely brilliant. And it's like a big dictionary encyclopedia. 
that tells you exactly how to be a director and how to be an assistant. And if you're in this, it's all sort of indexed, even about how to make tea for a director. You know, it's if, if the director asks you to make tea, what you should do. <laughs> and it's quite funny what he says you should do. And, and so I found those books very, very useful. And there are some brilliant books though about processes, aren't there? I mean, there's Mike Alfred's Different Every Night that looks at putting the seagull on. And then you've got Katie Mitchell's book, which I totally forgot what it's called. But she looks at the process of putting on the seagull and they're so different. I think those books are absolutely brilliant. Um, a Director's Craft, it's called The Director's Craft. That's it, A Director's Craft. Michelle, uh, um, oh yes, that's the one. And um, um, and maybe the John Kerr book isn't called that, I can't remember, but it's a book about directing. I think, it's, is it called The A to Z of Theatre Directing? It's something like that, something isn't it? Something like it's, that, um, yeah. It's like a big dictionary. Yeah. Um, but um, it's, Yeah, it's huge. It's massive. And I never read that book, but it was the book I consulted, the John Caird one. But the Mike Alfred's Katie Mitchell one, I thought was brilliant. Actually, one book I do read that I go back to again and again and again is a book by Mike Bradwell called Inventing the Truth. And I oh, think I, I adore that book. I think it's, it's a think brilliant it's book. It's, it's actually probably, yeah. it's the book I use most when I'm thinking about putting, because what Mike does so amazingly is 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 the backstory and how he gets the actors to work on a backstory it's it's so it's so simple and clever but so effective and so i think that book's brilliant and i also think that's a rather wonderful title about directing isn't it inventing the truth because what we're doing on stage is fiction yet we call it truth we we, we say an actor needs to be truthful yet we are it, it is all imaginary imaginary and it is all invention so i think that's a rather I think that's a brilliant book. His his book about how to be how he became a director, the reluctant escapologist, is is also a brilliant read. Um, yes, yeah, so they're the ones I use most of all. I've looked at some of those classical theatre, you know, the Sister Berry, how to speak Shakespeare books, um, and a brilliant. If you want to do Shakespeare, I still think the best book about about. Shakespeare and Shakespeare language is the John Barton playing Shakespeare, which is also quite a creaky old TV series now, but I think it's all on YouTube and, and it's rather interesting seeing Judy Tenchini and McKellen, for example, when they were much younger, talking. It, sounds, it looks quite pretentious when you start watching it, but actually what they're saying is absolutely brilliant and, and I kind of love all of that. Um, and I suppose my process is, because I wanted to be a historian so much when I was younger, and a little bit of me still does. Um, I do a lot of research just because I absolutely love it. I get so much pleasure from um, from sort of imagining myself in other people's lives, you know, and really immersing yourself in whatever world you are looking at. I absolutely, I absolutely love that because you learn so much about people and relationships, and that's what. I suppose I'm quite a nosy person and I quite like to know what's going on in people's lives. So when you when you're absorbing yourself in in the world of other people or people that have lived or or if your place set in a certain time, you know, you, you kind of invent your world for their time in a very imaginary way. I absolutely love doing that and, and putting that and putting that on stage and, and I think you know, I think 
research is really important to a point and you can discard it whatever and but it's just good to know because there's been so many times in rehearsal where you need an answer to something or you you're a bit stuck on something and if you've done your homework you know for example if you're doing a place in the 17th century you know there's a really good book called something like everyday life in restoration london that's actually a really fascinating read but it tells you how people used to brush their teeth and 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 i know you're not going to see that character brush their teeth but it's it's really important to know, you know, how how that character may brush their teeth if it if it's relevant to what to how they're walking on or something. So, you know, just absorbing yourself in all of that, I absolutely love. And because detail at the end of the day, when people go, Oh gosh, that's such good acting or that's that's such a great production, it's often because it's a really detailed performance. And by that I mean, you know, a lot of nuance or credibility or whatever. Um but that's sort of really what what I think people mean. So if research helps give a detailed performance, I think that's really good. So I'd probably do that and, but I wouldn't, I don't like sitting around a table for too long because I think it's it's all right if if the research is going on, but it shouldn't bog the actors down because it's not their job. And and it's, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to leave that behind at some point and you mustn't let that infiltrate into the rehearsal room too much. I think movement's really important. I try and, get movement into my process as much as possible because you know sometimes you know body language is so important and 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 you know just the way someone sits on a chair says so much and I think you know I put I put um I put much that in I find it odd though it's I always find it hard to answer that question about uh process because I think it changes for the need of what the writer's writing about if that makes sense in that you know sometimes I'll go right I'm going to do this exercise at this point but 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 then you have to sort of judge it is that right for the room is that right for the actors is that what the actors need now you know some things I might do at the beginning of a rehearsal process for one play I wouldn't do to the end for other plays or I might discard that notion completely for a diff- another play because it's not appropriate to the material um uh, yeah but I suppose we're all where they all all the productions I've done have a similarity is it's getting it up on its feet as soon as possible and and you know and and just I, I think it's quite good to what, what I have learned a lot from the directors I've assisted is that it's pretty good to get a blueprint of staging done really quickly um not 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 to lock that down or block it Ugh, I hate that word not to block it or anything like that but so that when you come to it the next time in rehearsal, you've got a framework to work from that can completely change and it should change and it should evolve. But I have sat too many times as an assistant director where people are just talking about, if I move over here on that line or I sit there on that line or do this it, like the week before you're going to tech and it drives me mad. And, and so in a way, in a way you have, to, I always find in rehearsal, you have to get the first two weeks or the first week and a half to really get to where you need them to get for the middle part of rehearsal, the really exciting part of rehearsal where you're actually rehearsing, you need a lot, for me, you need a lot of groundwork. So give give everyone, we work on a very rough blueprint so that we've got something to hang on to for the next time we look at it. And as I said, you can discard that, you can change that completely and you probably should change it completely, but at least you've got something to start from and people people can then decide whether that feels right or wrong 
and therefore can evolve their performance from there rather than literally worrying about how it's going to look throughout the whole of the rehearsal period which I just find really disheartening um so yeah that's where that's where there'd be similarities but but different every time and um just to be just to be quite granular about uh that blueprint blueprint and starting to move the play as early as possible what is the um what's the spark for that blueprint as in when you first take to the rehearsal floor to work on a scene say on day three of rehearsal what are you what are you carrying to the floor that uh can make that move well i i suppose if you've got if you've got a really brilliant designer and because of the way theatre really works is sets and stuff are often designed way before the actors are employed because they the sets have to be built and costed and all of that malarkey so so what you often find is you know if you're if you've got a really good design so for example if you're doing a play set in a living room if the designer suggested the sofa should be somewhere i mean i'm speaking hypothetically here somewhere and in relation to that chair or in relation to that area or whatever often you'll find if you tell if you tell the actors very early on so this is where the sofa is the bathroom's that way or that way often and rather by miracle the staging takes care of itself because they know the geography of the place so they so they you know you can work out something quite quickly that again of course can change because i suppose the argument is what you feel what an actor feels in week one they about a certain line or a certain impulse may change i'm not saying it will but it may change and in all probability it will change when you get to week three and you know the play better and they're they're rehearsing with the actors they're actually going to be doing it with so you can't get stuck on an idea in week one because an actor is going to feel something different in week three but if the environment is if the environment's really well designed then 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 actually you, you you find oh gosh there's an opportunity to do this here and all of that I've only once worked where I've started rehearsing a play and it hasn't been designed. And I found that really tricky. And I know other directors, that is their process, that they, they don't want to design. They want to design to come out of the rehearsal room. What I found tricky about that was was that you've got... You start inventing things that you don't really... But, well, it's fine. If you've got 10 weeks of rehearsal, then it'd be wonderful. You invent things you don't really need and, and everyone's going, well, maybe if we had this and maybe if we had that... And then you find you're not really rehearsing the scene or, or, or the or the text. You know, you're just designing it, which which of course is wonderful. Again, if you've got ten weeks and that's your process, but 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 I find that quite difficult. So if if your designer has worked really hard and you've worked really hard with them, then that's your starting point. You've got something to start from, which you can then explore, and then you can say, well, that chair's definitely in the wrong place, or we need to move it from here. But at least that gives you something to to start with. Does that make sense? That it's it gives you it gives you some sense of geography before you've even got up on your feet. Yeah, I, absolutely. Um, that's re- that's really clear. And thanks, uh, thanks for being so detailed. I just have a couple more questions before sure. we wrap up. And thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, no, first of all, can you uh, can you tell us about the last piece of art that absolutely blew your mind? Uh, what to watch? A piece of theatre, or, or... theatre, film, music, anything—the oh. the thing that, yeah, oh, the last thing to take your breath away. How interesting! Oh gosh, do you know I don't? There's lots of art. 
there's lots of paintings I look at and I'm literally floored by them. But now that I'm trying to think of any off the top of my head, I actually can't. I remember the last piece of theatre I was completely floored by. Um, it was quite a long time ago now. It was probably Yerma at the Young Vic. I just couldn't speak after I'd watched that. I found it so incredibly emotional. It was quite it was quite amazing. I absolutely loved it. And, well, loved it's the wrong word because I actually found it incredibly harrowing. And my two of my friends had been through a similar experience with infertility. And I suddenly was watching it going, gosh, they must have had this argument. And actually, I know they've had that argument, but I've never spoken to them about it. And I found that so affecting. And suddenly I was in their shoes when I was watching this and really thought about what they've been through. And, and I just was so incredibly moved by that whole experience. Yeah, it was it was a remarkable production, and I think uh, alongside the things you've just said, what what I think was so impressive about it was it had such a stark and beautifully theatrical design, and yet very good the, design. But the the acting in it just it felt so lived in and so real and so like you were um, observing or, or peering in at someone's life, and it was sort of that that perfect blend of absolutely engrossing performances that you could back 100% in terms of their authenticity and Definitely. at the same time this brilliant theatrical experience. It was, yeah, yeah, and actually it was the, but it was actually the first big theatrical moment in that production where I suddenly thought, oh, I am watching something incredible because for the first sort of half an hour, I was like, oh, am I really watching Yerma? Not really, I'm watching a version of Yerma, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, they're doing that very well. And, oh, that's very slick and uh, yes, all right, they're very in, into this. Oh, I get it. Oh, I can see why people like this and da-da-da. And then all of a sudden there was that, you know, the moment when the blackout happened and then the lights came up and you were suddenly out of nowhere. You were in looking into a room full of furniture and the furniture had been really sparse before and you saw Yerma holding a, a real baby and this beautiful music playing as you were looking in. And and you felt very voyeuristic because you were literally looking on the world. But because I knew the play a bit, you just go, gosh, I'm I'm watching her fantasy. And suddenly at that moment, when you realise you're watching her fantasy, you're living it through, you know, you, you know, the word drama means to live through, doesn't it? And the best productions you watch, the ones where you live through them with the characters. And I suddenly thought in that moment, gosh, this is such a beautiful moment. I know why she wants this. And then, of course, within a few seconds, it changed back to the sort of Spartan set with one with one little cardboard box or something and her looking very miserable. And uh, it was that moment I went, OK, this really is as good as people are talking about. And after that, I just was so with it. But because I suppose it did, it's exactly what you're saying. It was so credible, but it also appealed to your emotions. And and I think, it, you know, at the end of the day, watching theatre is all about the human experience and trying to understand what makes us human. And I think theatre will, I'm hoping theatre will have an enormously important function when we get through the current pandemic because because I think this will change people it will change lives it will change our outlook on life and what it means to be human and theatre's going to have a huge part to play I'm hoping people are going to be yearning to not watch things in their room just watching the tv they're going to want to watch stuff together they live tangible actors in front of their eyes so I think it's it, it could be I mean money's going to be a problem of course but it actually could be a really exciting time for theatre because there'll be a need for it to evoke the same reactions as sort of Yerma evoked because they were so human and 
collective. I know that probably sounds a bit pretentious, but but I really sort of hope that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, uh, I, what, I'm 10 days into sort of living entirely uh, indoors now. Uh, and, yes. and before that, I yeah. would have, I would have been able to uh, sort of pontificate on about why theatre was necessary and the shared experience and all that. But yes, I don't exactly. I think I really, I really believe exactly. it. Uh, no. And now I can, uh, no. I realise how lucky I am. I spend every day of my life in a theatre. I work in one and I do realise actually that that's really important. And it's important at a much more simplistic level than I'd ever really considered. Oh, completely. And and what I'm missing, what I've realised is how how our job is so much about talking to other people face to face being in the same room with them every day it's totally reliant on on that but it's also totally reliant on people coming to theatre as I said right at the beginning you know a few you know half an hour ago when I talked about the JMK award it's really important to think about your audience and what we do is always for the audience and when you can't do that I, I think I take, I've taken it for granted so long and exactly what you're saying these last um, 10 days actually even though we all knew it we're really feeling it now and actually that's a rather you've got to be positive haven't you i feel that's a really affirming thing that 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 we can yeah assess this um, and know why we're saying what we're saying <laughs> yeah absolutely but in the meantime while we all while we all look forward to that can you recommend anything for us to enjoy while we're social distancing well if it's still on youtube and you love shakespeare watch the um playing shakespeare with John Barton, if it's still on YouTube, or read the book, because I think, I just think it's just brilliant and timeless and actually influenced so much of, of, of modern theatre, certainly modern theatre in terms of, of its relation to um, classic plays. Um, I'm going to try and read a play a day. I haven't, I haven't succeeded yet, but I'm certainly going to try and read a play a day uh, of, of my backlog of, of plays that I've bought but never really read. Uh, I suppose that's it. And just aren't we lucky that the RSC and the National Theatre are, are going to put some of their live programs online? And there's lots of online stuff. So I'm going to um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to watch all the productions I never got round to seeing, and perhaps some of the ones that I've already seen seen again. But um, yeah, that's what that's what I'm going to do. Just as I said, I love research and I love all of that that aspect of it. So I'm just going to take this time to do that. And anyone anyone who feels the same should should do the same thing i think but but yeah there's also a good documentary on netflix and i've forgotten the guy's name but he set up an acting school and uh it was just a little sort of theater above a pub but richard gear trained there and lots of amazing people and it's a huge documentary about how he did that and i've totally forgotten what it's called but that's on netflix so i'm intending to watch that as well because I love this sort of grassroots American training that's so different from the training people in Britain get. And I, I really, I'd really love to learn more about that. So I'm going to sort of in, indulge in, in that sort of thing. Brilliant. Well, um, Michael, thank you so much for spending the time uh, talking oh, yeah. to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope um, that's helpful. And, uh, yes. Uh, and it would be lovely to see you in person when all this is over. Oh, <laughs> you too. Much. See you very soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.